Thank you for joining our podcast. We hope that this message will both teach and encourage you. Here's today's message. Something I wanted to do is it was it has been in my heart that somebody who is raised in this church goes way back. He and I are close to the same age. I can't remember if I turn older than you do just before you do, but uh, Brother Brian Thomas, whose father pastored this congregation before Tasha and I came to pastor, and we have his mom, Barbara Tribble and Bob Tribble, and I was reminded that just two years ago or so, in this very place, we performed a wedding, and I told him, I don't tie slip knots or hang men's nooses. So in somewhere in the middle, they've been enjoying the grace and the peace of the Lord together in their relationship. And they're here this morning to, to do exactly what I'm here. I'm here to hear what Reverend Brian Thomas would bring to us as a congregation. There's somebody I want to work into. The, he's, he's always ministering in the seniors. And some of you are saying, well, I don't go to the seniors. And so I thought, on this Sunday, we need to start working into our rotation. Brother Brian Thomas, would you give him a hand as he comes and... Shares the word with us this morning. Well, amen. It is, uh, it's really an honor and a privilege to get to speak in big church. That's not to diminish the seniors at all because I enjoy the seniors. Uh, it's just a little bit more of an intimate setting, but to speak in big church. That's, that's pretty awesome. This morning when I was getting dressed, uh, I was ironing my shirt and it dawned on me. I thought, what am I supposed to wear today? So I hollered back there to Cindy and I said, Hey, uh, hey, am I supposed to wear a coat today? And she said, Well, usually they do, you know. I said, Well, I guess I'm going to have to break out the black pants and a black coat so I can peek in the service. It's funny because when I see other people, uh, Maxwell's worn a coat before and other people wear coats and I say, Well, tap them on the shoulder. I say, Well, are you preaching this morning? Because that's usually a pretty good indication that somebody's going to be speaking in the service. But it is a privilege, it is an honor to get to uh, speak this morning. Um, as when Pastor Doug uh, texted me and asked me if I was going to be here today and I could do it, you know, then the mind starts, okay, what are we going to talk about? And I've been thinking about the subject of today of miracles uh, for a while for a senior service. So now it was just a matter of putting something together in a week. And, uh, you know, the enemy wants to uh, mess with my mind. I don't know if he ever messes with your minds, but he messes with my mind because uh, I'm a simple guy that has a simple message. And when I was uh, preparing this, there's really not a lot in the Bible that our seniors don't already know. So that's a challenge for me sometimes on seniors to bring something new and fresh. You know, they've been around for longer than me. So when I was thinking about this and the, the subject matter, I thought, this is really just too simple. It's just too plain. Everybody knows the stories. There's no point in preaching this. And that's what was going through my head. And I thought, you know what? I think that's the enemy telling me, hey, this might not be what you want to do. Because I think he'd want to do everything he can to keep my mind jumping from this to that to this to that. And then come Saturday night, I ain't got a plan what I'm going to do. So I just took it as a confirmation that the enemy is speaking to me and saying, hey, you might not want to do that because it's really simple. But I'm thinking the enemy is wanting me to not do that, so today we're going to do it. Another little secret about me is when I preach or speak to the uh, seniors, a lot of times what I prepare for you to hear is prepared for me, for me to hear and for me to put into practice. So when I'm speaking to you, you're just an audience hearing what I'm speaking to myself. And so today, it's the same. I can get something out of this, and I really believe that all of what I'm going to talk about today will be good for all of us. Amen? All right. Cindy asked me if I was going to tell any funny stories today. <laughs> Usually on uh, seniors, you guys know this, I, I try to think about some stuff that we had uh, done in the previous week or two or sometimes months that would be interesting to them. So I came up with one. It just happened uh, just this last week. Um, we had made a call. A young lady had cut her hand, and she's in the kitchen. 
She's in a towel because she was in the shower. So she's in the kitchen with a towel on her, and she's bleeding, and she's crying. And uh, we come in, you know, and her brother, which was just a few years older than her. She was 19. So her brother was probably in the mid-20s. So uh, Nick, Nick, our paramedic, he said, hey, looked at the guy and said, go get her a chair. So the guy walks over to the kitchen table and sits down and goes, thank you. (laughs) Nick's like, it ain't for you, it's for her. Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) So then he gets up and uh, gives her the chair. Nick had also asked the fella, he said, hey, go upstairs and find her something to put on because, you know, she's standing here in a towel. So uh, the guy goes up and he gets her a pair of shorts. Well, he gets this little top that was just like nothing. Nick holds it up and he looks at the guy and he's like, for real? Take your shirt off. What? Take your shirt off. And he made the guy take his own shirt off to put it on his sister. So, you know, it's funny stuff like that that we get to enjoy. And uh, it was funny because Kevin, my driver, uh, when the guy went and sat down, uh, he said, man, he said, I didn't want to laugh because it was funny. He said, I turned around and looked at you and you were laughing. <laughs> I was like, you can't make some of this stuff up and you might as well just enjoy it while you can. You know, because one day we may be in that same boat where another paramedic is coming to us and like, and did you see what that knucklehead did over there? Alrighty. Hey, if you don't mind, let's take just a sec and uh, let's talk about what just happened. Uh, give me just a little bit of a leeway here because yesterday we celebrated the birth of Jesus all over this entire globe. We, we celebrated the birth of our Savior. A lot of people in this world, they just celebrated a Christmas event. But all over the world, Christians of all nationalities came together and praised and worshipped the birth of our Savior. About 15,000 years ago, I'm sorry, 1,500 years ago, this before he was even born, and I have to say this too, it didn't take Adam and Eve three chapters to get it wrong. So that's how quick it took them. But in the third chapter of Genesis, there's the prophecy that made that says, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. So right from the very beginning, we get to hear about a Savior that's coming some 1,500 years later. And here we are, just a little over 2,000 years later, and we're celebrating that birth. And the world would want to do everything it can to tell us that that was not a miracle. That was just either uh, a physical event that happened or something. They want to scientifically prove that it wasn't a miracle. Well, miracles in and of themselves are not scientifically proven. Miracles in and of themselves, I believe, are supernatural events that can't be explained in the natural or the scientific way. And the world would want to do that. The enemy would want to take that virgin birth and discard it altogether. Because if he can disqualify that, then from there on out, the New Testament, really the Bible, is a null and void. Because if he was born of a man, he'd just be another man. But he was born of a woman but conceived by the Holy Spirit. And if they can disprove that, then they can disprove the entire Bible, and then you can take all the miracles that happened thereafter, all the words that were written thereafter, and just throw them in the trash because they're just fables. Because this event had to happen in order for the next 33 years to occur in history when our Savior walked this earth. I think about... Those first few years, we don't hear too much about him until he's like 12 years old, right? And he's in the temple. But uh, I think about Mary. Can you imagine you, you, you and your and his father know exactly where he came from and what it would be like to raise that child? And it says there, after he had been in the temple and they came back, he said it said it's, he subjected himself to them or he was submissive to them. The good boy. Can you imagine the son? Loretta thinks that she had the best son in the world. 
But Mary really had the best son in the world, right? And then some 30 years later, we get to see him come on the scene. Amen? I want to talk to you today just for a little bit about the seven miracles that the, that the John wrote. He only wrote seven. He says later in the book, I think it's in chapter 21, he says that Jesus performed much more, many more miracles, many more signs than were written in the book. But I think it's interesting that he chose seven miracles, signs to include in his book to tell his story about Jesus. So today I'm going to tell you stuff that you already know, but hopefully we can put a little bit of a different spin on it, a different look at it. How about that? First one, wedding at Cana. Turning water into the wine. This is in John chapter 2. It says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Six ordinary jars or vats of water. That's a lot of water. What, 20 to 30 gallons of water? That's a big old vat. I don't know if I could pick that up. But it was just ordinary jars. There wasn't nothing special about the jars. There wasn't anything special about the water. They either went to the well and pumped it or run it up, but they just filled it up with regular water out of the earth. There was nothing special about that water, nothing at all. But somewhere between the time they filled them to the brim and the time they dipped it out and they gave it to the master of the banquet, Jesus did the miracle. And it wasn't just any miracle. It was a miracle of turning something from this to that. Now, if we think back in the Old Testament, uh, God had done that miracle in Egypt, right? He turned the water into to blood. But here we see Jesus performing this miracle for this banquet. And it wasn't just an ordinary wine because the master of the banquet said, Hey, look, it's really odd that you bring out the very best wine, the best stuff for last. After we're all good and, dare I say, drunk, you bring out the good stuff. So it wasn't that he just turned it into a wine, but he turned it into a perfect, sweet I'm, I'm, I'm imagining it was pretty good stuff. Wine. What's interesting to me about that is the only people that saw that, the only people that knew that were the servants that did it and his disciples. They were the only ones. And if it had not been written about by John, then who would have known this would have ever happened? This would have been one of those miracles that just took place it was a sign to his disciples and to the, to the servants as well. So I think about that, and I'm thinking this was a, a sign just for them. Have you ever had Jesus do something for you that was just for you? It didn't involve a whole group of people. It didn't involve anyone else other than yourself. We made a call when I lived in Alabama. We were, we did a transfer service and this guy had, uh, he had trauma to his head and, uh, basically all we were trying to do is keep him alive to get him to Birmingham to, uh, organ donor. So it was my job to keep the fellow alive, right? So it involved some fluids and it involved a lot of oxygen. Well, we're the transfer service, so they just call and say, hey, we need to transfer. So we'd, we'd go to the station, we'd get the transfer ramps, and we'd just jump in it. We'd go to the hospital, pick them up, and take them to Birmingham. Wasn't a big deal. We get about halfway up to Birmingham, and I look at my oxygen level indication, and it is about out. And I'm thinking, okay, 
I'm here. I got to go there. We're not going to make it. So then I started taking stock of, okay, we got a lot of little small bottles in our bags and in the mammoths. So thinking, okay, we'll let that run out. And then I'm going to go over here and I'm going to get this small bottle out of the bag. So I went ahead and got the bag out. And guess what? No bottle. <laughs> no bottle. So now I am stuck. I still got about a 30 minute drive and I'm running out of oxygen. So I just said, Lord, you know what this fella needs. You know what I need. And you know that there's absolutely nothing I can do for this man. I need your help. And I pray, Lord, that you would give me enough oxygen or give this guy enough oxygen. Of course, I probably needed it too by then to get to the hospital in Birmingham so we can keep the fellow alive. And you know what? We get to the hospital. I told my driver, I said, run in there and get a bottle because we're out. He ran in there and got a little small bottle. And as soon as I took that mask off that man's face, there was no more oxygen. Now, I know because no one else was back there in the back of that ambulance that that was a miracle. And that was a miracle for me to see. That fellow beside me, he never got to see it, but I got to see it. And I thought, and I thanked the Lord every day. I thought, Lord, I thank you that it was this little bitty thing that you did to show yourself real in my life. And when he does these things and he showed these servants and he showed the disciples, it wasn't so much that he was worried about giving them good wine as much as it was, I want them to see what I can do. I want to make myself real in their lives. Amen? So, ordinary vessels filled with ordinary water are ordinary until Jesus changes the ordinary into the extraordinary. Amen? Number two, healing of the official son. Let's see if we can read this. Once more, he, Jesus visited Cana and Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee of Judea, he went to him and begged him to come heal his son, who was close to death. What drove that man to Cana that day? One, desperation. But two, he had heard what God was doing, what Jesus was doing there. So he said, hey, look here, my son's about to die. I'm going to go there. I think that speaks volumes to us as Christians that if we're showing the world what God can do, the world will be drawn to Jesus. When we're not acting right or we acting stupid, we do dumb things, the world sees it and they ain't wanting none of that. But when we're acting like God does something in our hearts and does something for us, then we can draw, he can draw people to himself through us. Let's carry on. Unless you, Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonder, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servant met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as the time when the son got better, he said to them, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that that was the exact time in which Jesus had told him his son will live. That's just Jesus being Jesus right there. He revealed himself not only to that official, but those around him that, that heard this. And the interesting story, it's not in the, in what I wrote there, but it says he went home and his whole household was saved. So we see a healing for a boy. We see a household being touched. And now we get to read about this and all those people that were there that got to see that. All Jesus asked the fella, just believe. I'm not asking you to do nothing hard. Just believe. I don't know why, but this particular one reminds me of Naaman in Second Kings. Uh, prophet Elisha told him, he said he was, a, he was a leper. And the prophet said, hey, go down there to the Jordan River 
and dunk yourself seven times. You're not going to come out here and, you know, wave your hand over me or touch me on the, you know, get some oil and touch me on the head. And it wasn't even Elisha that told him. It was his servant, right? He said, no, go wash yourself seven times in that nasty Jordan River. He's like, man, come on. There's all kinds of clean lakes around here. I can go dip myself in a clean lake of water. If it's just water that you want, there's plenty of water. Why do I have to go to this nasty, nasty Jordan River? So now he starts bargaining with God. And finally, he just says, okay. So he goes. And what happens? He gets healed. And what's interesting to me about that is Naaman didn't really have faith, did he? At first he didn't. He's like, what do you mean i got to go do that? But God was faithful. God was faithful that day. And I can imagine when Naaman came out of that water that seventh time, and now his skin's like a little kid again, he had a heart change, I would imagine, about what's going on in Israel and this God that they're serving. God made himself real that day to Naaman. But unlike Naaman, it doesn't say that the official bargained with him. It doesn't say he did anything. All he did was turn and shagged home, find out about his boy, right? So what do we see here? We see that faith and action are our part. We're not the ones responsible for the miracle. All we have to do is believe it and put it into action. James tells us that faith without works or actions is what? Dead. So if we can't put action with our faith, we don't have anything. But when you put those together, it's unlimited what God can do for you. Amen? Putting us to sleep. Amen. It's warm. Number three, healing of the lame man. This is in chapter five. It says sometimes later Jesus, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, did I say it right? Near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the the paralyzed. One of those who had been there an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there, he learned that he had been there in this condition for a long time. And he asked him, do you want to be well? Can you imagine Jesus asking you, do you want to be well? Do you want your mead net? He says, sir, I'm an invalid. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down before. Ahead of me, then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Jesus met this man where that man was at. This man didn't come running to Jesus, he couldn't come running to Jesus. He was just there along with all of his other uh, sick buddies. And here comes Jesus. And of all the questions, now I don't mean this in disrespect, but, but What kind of question is, do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? You would think the man would say, well, yeah, well, yeah, I want to be healed. What's up with that question? Surely. But no, he started to go into excuses why he couldn't be healed. Now, one, he didn't know who Jesus was and didn't realize he was talking to him or he was just kind of a make-excuse type of person that why he can't be saved. Or healed, I'm sorry. But Jesus did it anyway. It didn't require any faith on this fellow's part. He's just making excuses as to why I can't be healed. Jesus said, all right, get up. And what did he do? He got up, walked around. Now, two miracles happened that day, I believe. One was the miracle of the man that healed was healed that day. And two, that miracle was for those that were looking, especially the religious leaders. Jesus, I think, had them in mind more than the fellow that needed a healing because he wanted them to see who he was and to prove who he was. So this miracle was really, I believe, for the most part, for these guys. 
Oh, I'm over here. So, what do we learn from this one? That Jesus will meet you wherever you are. No matter where you're at. And you know what's interesting about that is, is, uh, he's not just gonna meet you in church. He's not gonna meet the sinner in church to save them. His Holy Spirit will have to go to those people and bring them in. So Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, will go wherever we are. He'll go to the ends of the earth to have his Holy Spirit draw us to him. So there's no place we can run to. There's no place we can hide. There's no condition we can be in, whether it be a physical condition, whether it be a spiritual condition, whatever the condition may be. Jesus will find you where you are. You just have to be listening to what he has to say. And interesting to me on this one here, it didn't take the man to do nothing. All he did was just get up and walk. Sometimes that's just what we need to do. Again, action with the faith. Jesus will meet us where we are. Number four, feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus looked up, I'm going to start on verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked them only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. You can stop right there if you wanted to. Nothing is going to catch God off guard. Nothing's catching Jesus off guard. He has a plan. He has a purpose for everything he does. And this particular day, it was their turn to be tested. Philip. So Philip answered him, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough food for those, I'm sorry, for each one of, to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, now I'm not sure if he's having a little bit of faith or a lot of faith, but here comes Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and he spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far would that go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Tell them to sit down on the grass, because there's plenty of grass in that place. And they sit down. About 5,000 men were there. So that means there's a whole lot more than 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed those who were seated as much as they wanted. That's another interesting thing right there. He said he did the same thing with the fish, and when they had had enough... It wasn't just a little snack that he provided that day. He provided enough for 5,000 grown men to have a, a full meal and then their wives and kids and everyone else that was with them as well. It wasn't just a little snack. This was a full-fledged meal because they got, they got full. And when they got full, i got to find my notes here. When they got full, Indeed, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left and nothing be wasted. So how many do you think they gathered? Twelve. I don't think there was any, uh, just, that just happened that twelve baskets were left over. I think Jesus was making a point that day. I'm going to feed all these people and I'm going to show you, because of your lack of faith, that you got a full basket. So now it's like they had to eat a whole basket of crow that day. <laughs> you know? It's like, where are we going to get enough to feed all these people? Well, just watch. If What do you think it would have been if Philip would have said, hey, you know what? You can do it. There's nothing impossible for you. You've healed all these other people before. We've seen you do this, so feed them. I think God would have answered that. Request. I think God would have answered that faith. But this day they didn't do that. And they had enough left over for them to go home and think about what they had just happened to them. That God had done more than he had ever showed them before. So we can take from that. Jesus can take the very little that we have, the very little that I have, and multiply it beyond my imagination. God can take the least of us and make us the best of us. Take people that can't speak well, and they speak well. People that don't have funds, he'll give them funds. People that don't have talents, he'll give them talents. 
It's just a matter of having the faith and believing that he can do that. Amen? Number five. I think I got my notes in order now. When I printed this off yesterday, it prints front and back. (laughs) So it's confusing to me. I'm sorry. I digress. Walking on the water. This is John chapter 6. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into the boat set across the lake from Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three to four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat walking on the water and they were frightened. These weren't just ordinary guys out on a boat, you know. Now, you take me out on Lake Worth and a good little breeze comes up, you know, I might get a little bit scared. These guys had been in the fishing industry probably most all their life, or they had been around it. So I would imagine this isn't the first time they've seen stormy weather. This isn't the first time they've worked. But I guarantee you, it was the first time they saw someone walking on the water and coming to them. So we can't throw stones at them for being scared. I'd have been scared out of my ever-loving mind as well. They were frightened. But Jesus said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. That's kind of interesting that he puts it in that. They were willing to take him into the boat. So, something about that, it's like, okay, I'm going to bring you into the boat. But they brought him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Where they were heading, I'm sorry. This is the first time that anybody had ever seen of or heard of anybody walking on the water. We had heard in the Old Testament how that God parted the waters, and even when they were crossing the Jordan River, it says when they stepped into the water, the waters parted. So this is the first record of Jesus walking on the water. And the only other one that can can even claim that would be Peter. Yeah, he had he had the faith to walk out there, but then all of a sudden he took his eyes off the Lord, and that's when the cares of the world, when he realized, oh, I'm walking on water, and I ain't supposed to be walking on water. He sunk. Jesus not only walked on the water that day because it proved that he is the master over this universe, over his creation. He created it, so there's absolutely nothing he can't do with it. But he calmed the waters and he got them to where they were going that day. Have you ever had a time in your life when it's like everything is just going wrong? It doesn't matter what I do right, it's going wrong. And you feel the storms of life. And life is going to have storms. There's not a one of us in here that can say we've never had a storm before. We've all had to walk through storms. But even in the midst of a storm, and even, I'm going to go ahead and say, even in the chaos of the world in which we live in today, the uncertainty of wars, the uncertainty of the economy, the uncertainty of this COVID stuff, God can still calm the stormy waters of our life. Just because the storm doesn't quit raging, the storm in our hearts, the storm in our minds can have peace because the peace giver can walk inside this this heart and this mind as same as he walked on the water that day. So we learn that Jesus is with you in the storms of life He is the only one that can calm those storms. He is the only one that can bring peace that passes all understanding to a person's life. You know, people think that money, that that things can bring them peace, that things can bring them happiness, and it may temporarily. But, uh, you know, I work in Southlake, so I see a lot of rich people, a lot lot more well-off than I am. I guarantee you they're not all happy. When you see uh, drug issues, attempted suicides, you think, well, why would they do that? Because they have everything that they need. Well, the world can't satisfy that need. The world can't 
meet that need. The world can't calm that storm. Only Jesus can. Amen? Number six, we're almost there. Hold on. As he went along, I'm sorry, healing of the blind man, chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned to this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it in the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Again, we see Jesus doing something that's extraordinary. Jesus being Jesus, you could say that. But this miracle was, I believe, a little bit different than the other miracles that he had done. For whatever reason, his eyes weren't working from birth. Some say he didn't even have eyeballs. And if he did have eyeballs, then the connective tissues, the nerves and everything weren't working. So what this required, this miracle required is a reconstruction or rebuilding or even building, creating something that wasn't either the ball itself or the nerves. Whatever this man didn't have, Jesus fixed it that day. And again, this miracle was a miracle a guy got to see, right? But this miracle wasn't so much for the man born blind as it was for those that got to see it happen. And I don't think it made them very happy. The religious leaders and those that saw this, they were just like, this is crazy. This man shouldn't be doing all this. But Jesus did it anyway. So Jesus, again, I believe, was making a statement to those around him. Look, I can I can heal anybody, but I can also make something from nothing because I am the creator. And I can do that for this man. And he did it for him. Hey, good for that guy, right? But good for the people that got to see it that day as well and for us to read it. And again, he had to put it into action, didn't he? Because if he had just sat there with mud on his eyes, he'd have died with mud on his eyes. You know? So he put his faith with the action. And again, Jesus didn't go, he didn't come running up to Jesus. He just, Jesus said, look here. We just need to heal this fellow. Amen? So what can we learn from this one? That there is no situation or circumstance that Jesus can't restore or create for you. If there's something in your life that's been taken away by the enemy, there's absolutely no reason why the Lord can't restore that to your health or to your life. God can restore, not only restore, but He can create something in you that you didn't even have before because He is the Creator. Whether it be a physical need or a relational need, whatever that need may be, Jesus is the only answer. Amen? Number seven. I think this is a big one here. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That's a pretty big one, huh? Jesus has been told that his friend had been sick for a couple of days and like, hey, Lord, you need to come touch him because this is Lazarus. You like him, right? You love him. Okay, let's go over here instead. So let's pick it up in verse 4. It said, when he had heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. You can underline, you can highlight that. That's the reason why this story is in this Bible. So that God can be revealed. And not only does it show what God does, it shows who Jesus is because he is God's Son. Let's go on down to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found Lazarus had already been dead. I'm sorry, in the tomb for four days. Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. 
Take away the stone, Jesus said. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been dead for four days. He's thinking. He's got a stinking problem. Then Jesus said, Didn't I tell you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Let me remind you what I told you earlier. Just believe. So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of those people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Again, there's the purpose behind this story. When he said this, Jesus called on a loud voice, Zacharias, Lazarus, <laughs> Zachariah, if you're there too, come on out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped strips of linen, and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus did this. Lazarus was just a fella. He didn't get resurrected like Jesus did. And he eventually died. But he wanted to prove to those people around him that, look, I've got the power over death. What else do you need from me? If I can, if I can take a dead man that's stinking, and it was important, it was important that he be dead. And it was important that he be good and dead. Poor Judd is dead. Poor Judd is dead. It was important that he be dead. Because if he had been just, uh, say, 24 hours in the tomb, oh, maybe he was just sleeping. You know, maybe uh, something was going on and they just couldn't feel a pulse and they just wrapped him up and put him in there. Nope. He'd been, he'd been in there for four days and he'd done gone to stinking. And what happens when you get to stinking? The body starts decomposing. That's why you get that stink. So here we got a stinking, decomposed, dead Lazarus that had to be dead, stinking, and decompetating. Decompetating. Yeah, that too. Decomposing. <laughs> you know, de-something. Because if it hadn't been, we could have, the world would have shot holes all through this story. But because of what it was, there's absolutely no doubt in anybody's mind that when Jesus said, come out or come forth, and he got up and he walked out of that tomb, well, he didn't walk. He was boom, 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 boom. Looked like Tigger coming out of there, right? He come hopping out of there. He was alive. The decomposition was done. I would imagine he didn't stink no more. Maybe those grave clothes did. <laughs> when Jesus said, hey, get that stuff off of him, let's unwrap him. And I want you to see what God has done today. Because it was for them that he did that. So Jesus can bring to life that which was dead. And you say, well, Brother Brian, I ain't got nothing dead about me. I'm alive and well. I'm breathing. I might have been close to death at one point, but I'm not stinking, hopefully. I'm not decomposing, and I'm alive. But let's look at uh, Ephesians 2. I don't know if I have that up there. Yes, I do. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You can stop right there. Boom. You were dead. Maybe not physically dead, but spiritually, we were all dead at one point. This is all of us. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of this, of the air. The spirit of, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires of our thoughts. Like the rest, like everybody else in this world that is drawn breath, like the rest, we were by nature deserving, deserving wrath. But because 
of what? His great love. Because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace, the grace of God, that you have been saved. So we can't claim that we were dead, we weren't never dead, or haven't been ever dead, because it's very clear we were all dead in our transgressions. Every single one of us. We were all dead in our transgressions. But for the love of God. John go, John tells us earlier, for what God so loved the world, that He gave us that Son that was born of a virgin. He gave us that Son that healed the blind people. He gave us that Son that walked on the water. He gave us that Son that has a, the victory over death so that we today can live. Amen. I think John selected seven good miracles. Seven good signs. If the praise team will come on up. I want to ask you some questions. I want to talk just for a second. We've seen that Jesus can take the ordinary vessel, the ordinary person, the ordinary people, and put his Holy Spirit in it and make that ordinary person an extraordinary thing. He can do more than you can imagine. So the question is, what is your vessel full of? Because we're all just vessels. Whether we're really pretty, whether we're really old, or whether we're ugly, don't matter how you are, we're all just vessels. But what matters is what we're full of. And that's the question is, what is your vessel full of? Because if your vessel is full of just plain water, you'll be just a plain water person. You'll be just plain. But if your vessel is filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll be more than you could have ever imagined. You can have victory over everything. When we put our faith, our actions to our faith, nothing is impossible in our lives. Is there something in your life that you need to put faith to? Have you felt God saying something to you? Have you felt the nudge of the Holy Spirit to do something? It could be as simple as talking to somebody at the Walmart. Sharing the gospel. Brother Jason does that. If he prompts you, you know, you got to put some action with that. Let me tell you, I've done it before. And when you're done and you've spoken to that person, at first it was a little bit hard to step out there and say, Hey man, you go to church? Well, whatever. You know Jesus. That was kind of hard. I'm not going to lie to you. But once you do it, that water's been broken. And you can walk out there. And the Holy Spirit will lead you. If you say, No, man, I don't want to talk to nobody. I don't want to do this. Whatever it may be. You may have missed the miracle in your life that day because you were just too reluctant to simply speak to someone or to do something that you were scared to do. Let me tell you, if the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do something, it will not be bad. The Holy Spirit will not lead you to some place where you can't, you can fail. If nothing else, you've planted the seed. When we face storms in our life, Jesus is there get us through them. He can calm the storm raging inside of us. So the question is, do you have anything in your life today that's causing you distress? Whether it be a physical element, whether it be a a relative that needs to come to Christ, is there something in your life that you need Jesus to calm your spirit for? Because He can do that. If He can walk on the water, and calm the seas. He can calm the seas in your heart. Finally, Jesus will make life where there is death. In Him is new life. One that is like no other. And no one else can do that for us. So the question is, is there something in your life 
that's dead, that's decaying in you? Is there something in your mind that's preventing you from moving forward? Is there something in your heart that's dead and just eating away at your life? Is there something else in your life, whether the place we go, the people we be with? If there's something in our lives that is not life, we need to cut it off and let the life giver bring life where there is death. Amen. So as the praise team are finishing up this morning, I just ask you to close yourself in and think, what am I full of? What do I need to get rid of? Is there anything in my life that's causing me troubles that I need to give to the Lord? And if it is, if you'll come down front, we'll pray with you. Amen. Tasha. It's all about you. You know, if you think about it, all the stuff that Jesus did, the miracles that he performed, it was all pointing to him. He loved us. He loved people. Jesus did a lot of wonderful things for people. But it was all about him. He wanted this world to know who he was. What is he asking of us today? Just be a vessel. Just be an old, nasty, cruddy vessel that he can fill and make it something special. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us. And it was because of that love and your grace, Father, you sent your Son to do the thing that we couldn't do, to save us from our sins and to bring new life to us, Father. I ask that you keep your hand on us, Lord, as we go. Keep us safe from harm and evil, Lord. And as people see us, they see you, Father. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.